0: Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Shep Gordon, and this is the second part of our extraordinary conversation about his life as a talent agent. And actually, how he got to know so many celebrities, artists, as well as the Dalai Lama—I hope you enjoy. Uh, well, uh, it, that is sort of always interesting to see, sort of uh, what celebrities end up doing when they the have the, yes, yeah. uh, the power and the wealth to decide so why do you think people uh and why there was a book written about super and a movie by mike myers what is it about you that results in you deserving that title perhaps
1: i don't know if i do you know you know the movie was really mike's movie and he had a need to do something and i fit into the agenda really well I think where he got the title from, Norman Lear had written me a letter that I was a mensch, and I showed him that letter. I think that's where he got it from. Um, And Once he did the movie, then as happens in our world, I became super mensch. I became the phallus. Exactly, right. You then became
0: that character.
1: Yeah, I became that character. So I, I try and do what I do for my team. I try and play that character when I'm supposed to. You know, I'll show up at places and do stuff, and uh, but I don't. I try not to take any of it too seriously. Well, that's probably the most healthy thing to do.
0: Speaking of, uh, one of the things that I uh, I was impressed with was I think you mentioned that you and Alice never had a contract, and it never seemed that that sort of quote unquote a contract was the most important thing. I mean, I think it basically related to trust that the other person's looking out for your best interests. And uh, and vice versa.
1: Yeah, I mean, my, my relationship with an artist, if there's any distrust that doesn't work at all, because I'm making choices for them, and it's all about my intentions. So I, I've only had one contract, Ann Murray, because she wanted one. But I've never had a contract with any of the artists after that. Interesting.
0: And then she left, uh, I guess, uh, as I think you mentioned, yeah. uh, <laughs> as you made her successful and then uh, taught her team, how to function, and then uh, uh, which is actually sort of a fascinating uh, story in and of itself, right?
1: Yeah, no, really interesting. It was interesting because I didn't know until I read her book. Oh, really? Yeah, it never was, you know, people ask me, how come Annie left? And I said, you know, I never really asked her. I remember that um, her guy, Lyman, contacted me trying to negotiate her way out of her contract. And I said, I don't think we have a contract. And he said, no, you have a contract. I thought, "Can you send it to me?" So she said, "I, I don't want anything after I'm gone," and we ended, and that was the end of it. But I never really, I never asked him why. She never called me to, to tell me it was him that called me. Really? Yeah. So um, it was only when I read the book that I saw that it was, um, it was sort of what I suspected, which was fine. You know, she got out of it what she wanted. I got out of it what I wanted. I just wanted to see what I was doing. One of
0: the other fascinating statement you made was you know music isn't that big of a deal to you it's not something you're incredibly passionate about per se which would sort of justify becoming a manager for musicians maybe you could comment on that but actually probably more importantly is commenting on how you saw a need within the chef community and how they were being taken advantage of for me um
1: I mean, I'm not opposed to music at all, but I've never been, uh, you know, I, I probably haven't gone to a concert in 25 years. I don't, I haven't turned on my stereo in probably 20 years. Not part of my life. It's a commodity that the people I represented sold. So it was important to me at the time. But my passion was, um, you know, very similar to your story. in that um, it was a mentor that changed the course of my life. Mine was a chef uh, named Roger Verge. Yours was Ellen. Ruth, Ellen Ruth. Ruth, Ruth at the magic shop. Yeah. But, um, very, very similar, right? Chef Verge had no reason to take me on as a project. Just like Ruth had no real reason to take you on as a project. It was only out of their compassion and kindness. And, um, I can't imagine my life without Mr. Verge and I got very lucky cuz I was in a position where I could actually give him something back and what I could give him back with some dignity How old were you uh, when I met Mr. Verge I was 78 I was born in 45 so I was uh, 30 33 I met him at 78 born in 45 so 33
0: You were still in the middle of your own success as a manager
1: Oh, I was hot shit. I was driving a white Rolls Royce. I had a playmate on my arm. I had a Coke spoon around my neck. (laughs) I was big shit. Yeah. I I lived a little bit of that on some level. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was happy in every moment. I was really happy in the moment, but I knew when I looked ahead when I did for myself what I did for my artist, which was try and look ahead, create history, I could see the headline for me, which was, "Rockstar Manager crashes into phone telephone pole," or "Rockstar Manager goes to jail for killing wife," or "Rock." It, it wasn't the story I wanted to write about myself. Right, right,
0: yeah. Rockstar Manager driving white Rolls Royce kills his wife. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. But I didn't know how to climb out. It was so good. Every minute was so good. I had the hottest nightclub in LA. I had just won the Cannes Film Festival, my first movie. I was, like, I was on fire. I was managing Raquel Welsh, Groucho Marx. I had the best drugs. I was like king of the hill. I got to, to this restaurant. It was the night I won the Cannes Film Festival, which led to a whole series of things in my brain of like, wow, where does this end? And how does this end and all of and everybody in the room that night, it was in a, in a restaurant and it was all the who's who of Hollywood. And I was just like them. My knee was bouncing up and down. I had a cigarette in my mouth. You could smoke in those days. I wasn't listening to anybody at my table. I was looking around to see who, Oh, there's Barbara Streisand. Oh, there's uh, and then into the room walked this beautiful, elegant Older gentleman, white hair, in a white outfit, and the room got silent. And uh, Anthony Quinn jumped up and went over and hugged them, and James Coburn, and um, Pavarotti. It was like a who's who of people waiting in line. Like, who the hell is? It? That's who I wanted. And he was smiling. It was like I said to myself, "That's who I want to be. I want to be the power guy, but happy." Like, who is this guy? I want all these people to do that to me. And uh, I waited that night till service was over and uh, Paramount Pictures had brought me up there. So I said, I'll get home. It's way before Uber. I had no idea how I'd get home. I waited for the place to be empty and he was sitting at the bar after the place was empty. And I went over to him and I said, hi, I'm Shep. He didn't really understand English. And, and uh, he said, and sort of asked him what he could do with me. And I said, that, and I said, you ever see um, Kung Fu? And he said, what is this Kung Fu? And I said, well, there's a show about a grasshopper and an older man. And the grasshopper sits at his feet. Can I be your grasshopper? And uh, I do not know what a grasshopper is. Uh, it's what the so I finally got through to him through the bartender, what I was saying. And he said, uh, do you know how to cook? And I said, no. And he said, well, if you learn to cook, come back and you can work with me in the kitchen for a day. So I uh, where do I, how do I learn to cook? He wrote that on a napkin at a couple of cooking schools, which I went to that year. And I came back the next year. I'm back, Mr. Virgé. He had no idea who I was. <laughs> but he was so kind. He's such a kind man. And he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, uh, I'm leaving for Bangkok tomorrow, and I can't be with you in the kitchen. I said, well, can I come to Bangkok? And he just looked at me like I was completely insane, like I could have been a serial killer. <laughs> and he said, do uh, if, if you want. And uh, that was the beginning of the journey.
0: And what year was that, did you say, 78?
1: 78. And he sort of let me uh, travel with him every year. We would do a two- or three-week trip, and we became closer and closer. And he allowed me sort of into his life, which was beautiful.
0: The driver that attracted you to him because he was a seemingly was sort of worshipped by all of these people you admired, or?
1: Yeah, and he was happy. You could see a real joy. It wasn't a strange joy. It was a real joy.
0: It's always interesting to look at those types of individuals who sort of carry themselves with this lightness and this joy, and, uh, and it sort of gets... Uh, uh, you know, they send it out to, you know, the world, if you will, and people I, I think positively react to that. So, how did that then lead to you representing Anthony Bourdain and other uh, chefs?
1: I never represented Anthony, but I represented most of the world's great chefs. Anthony would never consider himself a great chef.
0: Oh, well, that's an interesting insight and yeah. uh, maybe a statement about his own challenges, right?
1: Yeah. No, no, he was a realist. I mean, he understood that, you know, he was carrying out other people's recipes. He did it very well. Um, but his creative genius wasn't in in combining. His creative genius was telling stories. Well, he
0: was extraordinary, an extraordinary writer.
1: He had a great example of what we talked about, how fame can kill.
0: Yeah. Well, again, uh, as we talked about,
1: I don't know if you saw his last tweet came out yesterday in the New York Post.
0: Was this about with Asia Argento?
1: Yeah. But the last tweet he sent to his wife was, I hate being famous. Um, He was right on the button. And then he had, they do a tape where they his interview with me about fame. So he says that. And then I do my fame pitch. anyway, so I, so over the years I traveled with Mr. Verge and, um, I realized sort of over the years that he wasn't getting treated by third parties the way I would expect him to get treated, but it didn't, it wasn't a bullet point for me because we lived in our bubble. So like he would come to LA and Michael Douglas would, I would do a dinner at my house. Mr. Bruget would come He'd serve. Um, it would be uh, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Coburn, Quinn Nicholson, be the who's who of hollywood all in white chest jackets michael douglas would be the waiter he'd serve the food we'd make a big thing out of it to try and what i said to all the guys was these are artists like you he makes nothing he gets no respect let's give him a day like how many times have you guys called me to get into his restaurant begging during con to get let's give him so everybody got on board with Let's use our celebrity to help him be gets. So anyway, so it started, we started to build a little bit. There started to be a couple of people in America. Um, Wolfgang was sort of getting some notoriety. Charlie Trotter in Chicago. These were all disciples of Verger. At one point I said to him, you know, Mr. Verge, I'm, I'm really tired of doing the front of the house. It's been like 15, 20 years. I go out with you. You put on a cooking jacket. I put on a suit. You do your thing backstage. I make stupid conversation to someone at the event. And then we meet and go have dinner afterwards. I said, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do what I do for Luther or Alice or Ted. I want to check you into the hotel. I want to pay your bill. I want to collect your money. I want to do what I do for them. I want to make sure if they, you know, they're living up to what they said to me. I want to be at the back of the house. I'm not a front of the house guy. So he said, okay, chef, you can do it. So the first event is in Palm Springs and it's called the million dollar open extravaganza to open the new Western hotel in Palm Springs. Spend the night with, spend the weekend with chef Roger RJ. It's a million dollar opening, all their best clients. So I get there, this is 91, 92 maybe. So I get there and I go to check him in and he's in a single room. So I go back to the front desk and I say, I think you're wrong. No, no, no. He does the event. I go to get paid. I said, "Who do I get paid for Mr. Virginia. He said, Oh no, I would not accept money for this. I said, you you would not do what? And he said, no, no, chef, they don't pay me for this. And I do this to get customers at my restaurant. And I said, that's like the chitlin circuit. They say they would play to get radio play. That doesn't, it's not true. You got 120 seats. You don't need them in Palm Springs. How many people, from, you know, oh, Shep, it's okay. They're very nice people. I said, well, Mr. Roger, to you, they're nice to be that motherfuckers. But anyway, to your life, thank you. Happy to be here. And uh, I go to get the car. Mr. Roger is never late. He's never late. He's not. I said, I'll meet you at the car in five minutes because I'm driving him out of Santa Barbara for the next date. Where is it? He's down at the pool shooting a scene for food and wine magazine where he's holding the Western had launched the wine. He's holding their wine bottle. Verge had his own wines. So I go over to the guy and said, what are you paying him to promote your wine? No, oh, we're not paying him. I went in th- I grabbed the bottle from Verge. I said, you're not doing this. He said, oh, chef, I told them I would do this. I'm I, I said, Could I see you in a minute? So I said, I think you have your own wine line. They want to promote a wine, promote your wine line. You, they're not paying you. You, Oh, chef! They are so nice to me. <laughs> They're not nice. You right? must let me do. It. So anyway, then a long story short, every stop along the way is the same, including a couple of very famous chefs whose restaurants he cooked at, who treated him the same way. Wow. Maybe worse. And we end up the last is the Highland Inn in Carmel, still there, and they were doing a master series of weekends with chefs. Lunch, dinner, and cooking less than $2,500. Again, 92 so $2,500 are pretty. I show up. They give them a room next to a garbage dump. Literally, you couldn't walk in the room without the smell of the garbage dump. You know those old, those motel kind of places? So I gave him my room. I didn't tell them. Again, I go to get paid. I'm not getting paid. Oh, chef. No, they do not pay me. It's $2,500 a person. They sold. Are you crazy? And, um. I see on the billboard that Roy Yamaguchi is cooking the next night and Roy Yamaguchi lives in Hawaii. And I've been trying since the day I met Mr. Verget to get him to Hawaii, to get him to my sanctuary, which I've never been able to do. And I say, if he tastes Roy's food, he will come to Hawaii, I know it. If he tastes like Taro, he will come to see what it grows like. I know Mr. Verget I know he's coming. So i get him to agree to stay i rebook everything we both put our suits on we show up for the dinner the maitre d who i had gotten to know now because mr verget had worked there the night before pulls me over he said i'm so sorry mr gordon um, we have a policy here that help can't eat in the dining room and i said who do you consider help and he said uh, chef Roger. he worked here last night and i said you didn't pay him he's in my room what's your definition of help like and he said, I'll buy you dinner in the bar and it's not my policy. It's the owner's. I'm sorry. So that's what I never told Verge. We went to the bar. We ate in the bar. But the next day, he went back to France and I said to him, you know, Mr. Verge, I'm not going to tell you exactly what happened, but here's what I can tell you. If you ever accept deployment in America ever again from anybody without having them call me, I will personally choke you to death because I can't take the embarrassment of seeing people treat you like this. I'd rather see you dead than get treated the way they're treating you. And he just laughed. Oh, oh shit. oh, that's funny. Anyway, I get on the plane. I go to the big Island. I have Kenny Loggins doing an event for Nissan and I run into Wolfgang Puck. Hey Wolf, how you doing? Horrible. Why? I said, I'm doing the event here. Kenny Loggins. Yeah, I'm cooking for the Kenny Loggins event. I said, why are you horrible? He told me his story, which was worse than my story, which was, they promised him two first-class tickets. They had two coach. They asked him, uh, four days before he came, they asked him if he could bring 120 pounds of food with them because they couldn't source it in Hawaii. When I got to the airport, he said they didn't have a car to take me with the food. They said, get in a cab, we're very busy. When I got to the hotel, they didn't have a refrigerator for me. They made me walk it a mile down the road in Iraq. And I had to bring it back this morning and I'm not getting paid. And I said, you're out of your mind, For Jay's out of his mind. When we did the concert that night, Kenny Loggins, who got paid $150,000, had maybe 100 women waiting for an autograph. Wolfgang, who got paid nothing, had 400 waiting for an autograph. So I said to Wolf, I said, maybe I'll help out. And when I got back to L.A. about a week later, he called me up and asked me to come over to Spago. And they were like 60, 70 of the world's greatest chefs, Nobu and Paul Home and Charlie Trotter and Dean and him. And, and he said, uh, help, a big sign in the back. And I said, listen guys, I'll, I'll start an agency pro bono. and um, But you all gotta stop answering your phones. You gotta direct your calls to my office and it'll take us a couple of years, but we'll get there. And that was the beginning of the agency 92.
0: Well, that had a profound effect, obviously.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's very grateful. I just was in New York. I had three meals and the chefs picked up the checks on all three. And it's been 20 years since I've seen any of them. So it definitely had a profound effect and, and made me feel really, really made me feel gratified that, that maybe I worked for the right people.
0: Well, I, you know, I, at least uh, looking over your history, I, I mean, well, obviously, we all have our own motives. At the end of the day, you're trying to be of service. And I think that's, uh, and fundamentally, that's what compassion is. And that's what leads to a uh, fulfilled life, is uh, being of service to others.
1: I had a great moment with Mr. Verge that I like to tell students, particularly when I do talks. Every meal was treated as a, a special occasion. There were no toss-away meals. That didn't exist in Mr. Verget's world. If you had working. Everybody stopped for lunch. He made lunch for everybody. You share the lunch, you share the experience. There was no toss away dinners. There was no, never, never anything. So that was all planned carefully. We ran late one day. I think we were in somewhere in the Midwest and we ran very late in a place where the re- the restaurateur couldn't keep the restaurant open for Mr. Verge. Normally they would have but it was like inside a bank or in a mall or something that they couldn't stay open. So we were sort of left on our own to find a place to eat. And we just walked down the street and we went into the first place we found. And the, either the chef or the maitre d' recognized Mr. Brigitte, cause you could tell just the way they treated us. They didn't call him by name, but, and we sat down, for we ordered the meal. I didn't like mine at all. I left probably half of mine on the plate just didn't appeal to me at all. He finished his plate and he finished it, my plate. And uh, we left and we walked outside. I said, Mr. Brigette, I really didn't enjoy that. And I, I, I wish I did, but I didn't know. Could you tell me what you found in that that was so exciting that you wanted to finish mine? And he said, Oh Shep, it was horrible. And I said, well, it was horrible. Why did you finish my plate? And he said, you know, Ship, um, I don't know many things, but I know the chefs will be looking at the plates when they come back from our table. And I know that if these plates are empty, he will have a good night. And I know that if the plates are full, he will have a miserable night. I didn't wake up this morning to make someone's night miserable. And a horrible meal, I can survive. Bingo. And that's what life should be about. No, I
0: think – that's exactly right. And uh, again...
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's exactly <laughs> what it should <laughs> be. Yes.
0: Uh, and, 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 and in fact, probably if there's one lesson from our conversation, that's probably the most important one. You know, I, I think the story is correct. It may be a little off, but it was... Uh, was it Jimmy Page who was uh, uh, of uh, Led Zeppelin?
1: Yeah, great guitar and, player. And uh,
0: I think somebody... He made a comment during an interview... Uh, He said, you know, I'm so tired of playing Stairway to Heaven over and over again. I hate that song. And then he said, but what happened to me was, while I've played it a million times, I did not have an understanding that it had impacted so many people in such a profound way that uh, I was in some way being selfish And I should, uh, you know, honor these people because they're what made me a success. And as much as I may uh, not enjoy it as much, I have to honor the reality that it's not about me.
1: I've said I've made that speech so many times to artists who didn't want to do a hit.
0: Speaking of these very profound and deep comments we're making, which come to fundamentally sort of the uh, nature of our humanity, how did you hook up with the Dalai Lama? And was it through food?
1: It was um, through desire and use of food. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't really know much about them. My first brush with Buddhism was probably in the late 80s. I went to Thailand. And um, in the desk was a, I don't even know what you would call it, a Buddhist book of prayers rather than a Bible. Well, that's an unusual hotel. Yeah. Yeah. And I was reading it and "Hmm, this is really interesting. And I had a friend in college, Marty Kriegel, who knows everything. So when I got back, I called him up and I said, you know, I'm really curious about this Buddhism thing. Can you explain to me uh, what it is? Can you give me like, you know, a uh, moron's synopsis of it? And he wrote me like a five page letter about the meaning of Buddhism. And the last thing you wrote on it was, and now you can throw this wow. away, because your walks on the beach every morning, is what Buddhism wow. is all about. Wow, uh, it was really profound. It was bu- a beautiful piece. I still have it. I give it to, I've given it out so many times to people. So that got me curious. No one. Uh, I was dating an actress, and she asked if I wanted to come see the Dalai Lama, and I said, the Bo- he's Buddhist, does yeah. And I said, yeah, I do. I'm really. I never followed through on my curiosity, but I pick up that book every once in a while. Like in my bathroom reading, and I'll read a, a half a page. And the approach they have to life, more so than what they say, but their approach to it is really kindle something in me. I, I really feel akin to it. So we went to see this holiness We because I was with this celebrity, I got backstage. And I'll never forget, he wa- the door opened, he walked in the room and I felt like I had taken the best shower of my life. Like I'd never been that clean ever in my whole life. It just brushed through my head was that thought. And uh, I got to get a scarf and touch him and um, sort of figured that was it. But it was glowing. And I uh, got back to Hawaii and went to the bookstore and there was a notice that he was doing a retreat on the Big Island. At this time, he wasn't a pop star. You know, he didn't have secret service. It was a different game completely at a place called the wooded temple in a very remote part of the big Island in a Valley, uh, very remote. So I, and and I was now in the culinary world. I was now had opened my agency and sort of become a part of my life. So I, I got the name of the person who invited us to LA. His name was Richard Darlin, Darlo, the, uh, who is the representative of his holiness in America. And I made an offering of the food for while he was here for him and the monks. And they sort of checked me out. They flew someone over here to meet me and approved it. And in a true Tibetan way, wouldn't tell me too much about what he eats and doesn't eat. They don't like to to impose their will at all. Oh, no, whatever you cook is fine. Well, is it a vegetarian? Oh, no, whatever you cook is fine. But I got lucky I found someone whose house he had stayed in and gave me the routine which was the complete opposite of what i expected i expected vegetarian lots of kale he wanted meatballs and spaghetti at five in the morning and beef stew and but when i did my research the only thing that um i could find and now my brain is i'm at that point in my life anyway that they make tea out of it yak yak butter was about the only thing i could find was indigenous to the thai diet and i found a guy a friend of mine who snuck some in for me because he couldn't bring it in legally and it smelled up my house like a locker room for a month um, just was the most foul smell ever but i was so proud i had it and the only thing they told me they wouldn't tell me what to make they wouldn't tell me anything except if anyone. If you or anyone on your crew has any expectation of meeting his holiness, you should not do this. So they wouldn't tell me what to cook, but that was the one thing that they stressed every single time was the expectations of the people helping you coming in. They didn't want anyone to have that expectation. So we all sort of took it out of our brain and uh, we get there in the first morning. The breakfast was at five. Um, Renschen came in and said, would you bring us Holiness breakfast? No, you told us we're never going to meet him. And he said, no, we'd like you to bring it to him. And they covered my mouth. And I was, the tray was shaking. You could hear the the plates shaking. My armpits were so sweaty. I was so nervous. Um, but I was so proud because I had yak tea. And he's in Hawaii, and I'm going to serve him yak tea. I'm the coolest guy in the world. Look at me. How cool am I? I got yak tea for <laughs> so The plates are shaking. I go up to the door and um, the door's open. And he's, he's got his, his robe is halfway down. He's brushing his teeth. And he goes, oh, hello. I go, A breakfast? I, yes, Your Holiness. No, bring it in. Thank you, Your Holiness. Yak tea? And he says yak tea and I go into ecstasy. Like now I am definitely I'm the coolest guy on the planet. I'm like, there's nobody in the world cooler than me. I could get struck by lightning right now. I'm the coolest guy in the world. And through that fog of self like glorification, I hear him saying, Oh yeah, yakti, that's why I leave Tibet. <laughs> <laughs> He just leveled me right to the ground <laughs> in like once. It was the most beautiful, you know. <laughs> and our journey began. <laughs> and I got lucky enough to cook for me again in Trinidad and then in New York, a few other places. And then someone showed up who knew who I was and got me to join the oh, board. Oh, the, the Tibet Fund? Yeah. Ah, Bob Thurman. Yeah.
0: No, I, I've known Bob uh, many, many years. Actually,
1: yeah, we did some good work. I'm really proud of the work we did, and it's the only board that he chaired. So I got to be with him once a year, which was fantastic. I had to wear a suit and tie, not my whites. I like wearing my whites more. So, are you still
0: in touch with uh, His Holiness, or
1: no? I'm not. You know, it's um, they sort of they live in a different world. Since the Secret Service and and. Uh, There's a ring around them that's very protective, which I guess they should be. And God bless them all.
0: Yeah, I was, uh, you know, he was the benefactor for the center I ran at Stanford, run at Stanford. And then uh, I became chairman.
1: He was very excited about all the testing and all those things. Oh, yeah. That was really what a very big compassion for him was how how Buddhism and meditation affect the brain and affect actually empirical evidence of how it's done was very important to him.
0: Yeah, I uh, actually edited a textbook uh, published by um, Oxford Press that was called uh, "The Neuroscience of uh, the Handbook of Compassion Science," actually, which
1: uh, oh yeah, yeah, I know that, I know that. Yeah. which
0: I gave him uh, a few years later, and um, and in fact, I dedicated it to him. But uh, yeah, I haven't been connected for a while, as you pointed out. There's a, a whole well, he's getting older, plus uh, I think they become very protective
1: of his time. Yeah, yeah, so, you know um, how do you say it in the nicest possible way? Power corrupts, and not necessarily the person in the middle. I mean, I, I have examples with them that are so he's so amazing. I'll, I'll tell one that I really have never told before, and I, I'll keep it. I'll leave all the venom out of it. I hope, but I produced an event with them here in Maui, and um, I had gotten a a grandfather in Honolulu reached out to me that his 11-month-old do- granddaughter was dying of a brain tumor, cancer, and that he had, had a dream that His Holiness touched her and cured her, and that he didn't have any resources, he didn't have any money, he didn't, had no idea how he could even get to Maui, but he was just writing to tell, him, tell us about the dream and see if there's any way we could possibly Get this granddaughter who we loved so much, his only granddaughter, and we all got so excited. Who had been working on the event because we—I remember saying we read the letters. Now we know why we're doing this. This is not just about us putting on it. Now we, now we, guys. Wow, we all started crying. It was like you know, and the people around them wouldn't let him meet her. Really? No matter how hard I tried, I could not. So um, I sat down with my team and I said, "Listen, this is." I know I'm, I'm your leader, and I'm supposed to act in a way that you can be proud of. But fuck him, he's going to meet him. And um, but the end, of the, sto- the so part of the story that's significant is not that part. So we get to the field for him to do his talk, and at the foot of the stairs, there's probably 20 people and a bunch of kids. I have the grandfather and the daughter at the foot of the stairs. And I say to the guy who wouldn't let the meeting happen very nonchalantly as we're walking to the stage, I said, one second, I said, did I tell you about the Hawaiian custom? And he said, what's that? And we stopped and I said, "Hawaii, before you address um, any public crowd, you have to get a blessing from a child. So I put a child down there. Oh, okay. So he turns around to tell us holiness, his holiness is gone. He's holding the girl in his arms holding her in his arms, kissing her, will not let go. Holds the whole thing for 30 seconds while he's kissing her, hugging her, petting her, doing it. The end of the story, his holiness came back a year and a half later to Honolulu. I had nothing to do with it. And by that time they, they weren't even inviting me because I was vocal about how pissed off I was. And, um, I get a letter from the grandfather. The girl lived. Could he bring her backstage to meet his holiness? Oh, wow. Yeah, I had the heart to tell him. <laughs> so I just never answered the letter. It was like <laughs> well, but that's who he is. That's why he is who he is. No,
0: no. He, uh, as you mentioned uh, when you were in his presence, you it's extraordinary because I think you have this. One of the few experiences where you interact with somebody who – for no other reason, gives you unconditional love and embraces you with it. And, uh, there's no other agenda. And, and and I think that's quite extraordinary. And I would suggest, you know, many of these elevated spiritual leaders like Amma, I don't know if you've met Amma, the hugging saint.
1: No, I have something. Someone brought me something. Yeah. Or, uh, she's a heart, uh, Or something. Uh, Well, she's
0: this rotund lady who doesn't speak English, or she understands it, but but she gives you these uh, darshan or hugs. But uh, again, like him, though, you just feel the sense of unconditional love, and uh, uh, you know. So I've had such joy in hanging out with her and a variety of these people: Eckhart Tolle, Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, Sadhguru. And uh, on and on and uh, so
1: it, yeah, Ravi's pretty amazing guy. I did his box uh, set. Oh, really? It, yeah, I produced it with George Harrison. So you're talking about Ravi Shankar, right? Yeah. yeah.
0: So Sri Sri Ravi Shankar actually is a spiritual and religious leader. So he so he has an extra shri by his name. So shri means holy. <laughs> so he's holy, holy. Uh, Robert
1: Dranko was pretty out there, too. He was pretty subtle.
0: Yeah, no, I, certainly I'm aware of him. That's uh, sort of my time uh, as well. So uh, I think we've covered a lot of territory here. Maybe you can... And I think actually you already imparted, uh, uh probably the greatest lesson you learned from,
1: uh, Mr. Verger. Well, that's funny. Steve Luzo just texted me. That's really
0: funny. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's great. He's, uh, He's been a good friend for a long time, and uh, very yeah, certainly been a really uh, good man.
1: What a beautiful family! Yes, yes, uh, inf- what a beautiful um, that's a that's a role model for the world right there. That family.
0: Yeah. No, I was actually probably with him two or three months ago. Actually, at, at his house here. So uh, uh, nice fellow.
1: I, I just made him a reservation at a Japanese restaurant. <laughs> that's why. He's- He's texting me. Oh, back. I'll,
0: I'll text him and tell him <laughs> I, I was. Make all
1: the world yes. for people, <laughs> <laughs> what I do. I,
0: I, I'm going to have to come and visit Maui. Maybe, maybe I could get a get a free meal from you.
1: Anytime, anytime.
0: So, actually, maybe ending up, it was interesting because you had commented about uh, relationships and sort of that's where we started. What do you think changed for you that actually allowed you now to be in this position? Uh, where you're married, obviously extraordinarily happy, with child. Did something change in you, or did circumstances uh, change?
1: No, I, don't, I didn't really feel any big change at all. It just sort of happened really naturally. I met a woman that had the same rhythm as most of my other relationships, except she had different answers. When I said, would you like to have a child, she said yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we we dove in. And, um, after the baby was six months old, we decided to get married because it was the right thing to do for Benjamin. And, um, it's, it's been, uh, it's been everything. Everybody always told me it would be. I, have raised four adopted kids who I love very much. You can't love people more than I love them, but it's a different kind of love. It's wild. You see, so I see so much of myself in Benjamin, um, so much of my father. I thought there was a lot of stuff I would never get answers to. Now I realize that there's almost almost nothing I will get answers to because it's just so big. Like, how does that happen? How does he learn to talk English? How how do these things happen? It's really wild. You're closer to the source of understanding what being human is. But for me, it's just this miracle that unfolds itself bigger and bigger. Rather than get more answers, there's more questions.
0: Well, I, I certainly would concur, even as a, a neurosurgeon and a neuroscientist. Yeah, my experience is the more people I know and the more I know, I realize the less that
1: I know. And uh, uh, yeah, That's really amazing, isn't it? It's so big. Yeah.
0: I, I think sort of being comfortable with that reality, though, and uh, I, I think as we talked about sort of this underlying reality... That I think you learned, and hopefully I learned as well, which is what makes a life is uh, caring, uh, being of service, being non judgmental, forgiving. And I think that's where happiness comes from.
1: You know, and I, I think the thing about your book and my life that I think are so important for, for people to, young people to try and draw from, which is really hard for them to ever draw farm is the power of mentorship and and how important it doesn't just happen you have to work at it and if you can hone your skills to at least look for it you know to try and use your peripheral vision and and not be arrogant enough to think you can just get through this thing and understand it the people that I've seen who who seem to get through it the best and are the happiest at some point start talking about their mentor. Sometimes their mentor is a parent, rarely, usually it's an outside person. But when I read your book, the power of the, of the relationship between you and her and how, how hard you worked, just like me, how hard I worked to keep my relationship with Mr. Verger or the Dalai Lama, I mean, I worked, that's harder than I worked at anything else I ever worked at, um, and how many lines I would cross. None of my own rules mattered. It's whatever mattered to them. Whatever it took to get be close, to be near them. So I think you know, on a very practical level, that's what I loved about your book. On the the, the, um, the power of mentorship is just remarkable, and you can't really quantify it. It's not like one and one is two.
0: No, that's. I think that's absolutely correct. And I think one thing people don't realize sometimes that uh, you know, a lot of people say, well. I'm not in Chef's position or Jim's position. I really can't do that. But I think everyone has something to offer to another person. And that maybe that's the message at the end of our conversation is that uh, everybody has the capacity to be a mentor. And it's something you can do. And while it will take time, the joy you receive from that is uh, extraordinarily profound.
1: I enjoyed talking to you. I really enjoyed reading your book. Thank you.
0: And uh, thanks for taking the time uh, to do this podcast.
1: Hopefully we'll get to share a meal. I
0: am looking forward to that. I may just come on a plane and knock on your door.
1: Come on over. I'm here. The snow's working.
0: Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts. Or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com.